Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelly. This is the wrap-up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. Happy winter, everyone. If you're on the east coast of Australia like us, you'll know that it's been freezing lately. And if you could see me right now, you'd see that I'm wrapped up in a great big blanket because it is that cold at the moment. It is so cold and unlucky for the viewers, they can't see you because it's a very fashionable choice, Josh. Very (laughs) on theme as well, the weather for my story today. It's all about the new and old Cold Wars. Uh, Very nice segue, Kelly. Yes, look, it's a big episode ahead. We've got everything from nuclear weapons to royal families. So buckle up and let's get into it. Now, believe it or not, for the next four weeks, North Korea will lead the UN conference on disarmament in Geneva. This comes despite the regime's recent missile launches and rising speculation of a possible nuclear bomb test. Last week, North Korea became the president of the Conference on Disarmament. It's a negotiating forum that has existed since 1979 and is a place for the international community to discuss global disarmament. Its current agenda includes the cessation of the nuclear arms race and nuclear disarmament, prevention of nuclear war, prevention of an arms race in outer space, and transparency in armaments. Wait a minute. This is a body aimed at reducing the risk of nuclear war, and yet North Korea is the president? How does that work? Yes, it is quite perplexing, and I will explain how they managed to get the presidency in a moment. But North Korea's ambassador's opening speech as president did seem quite positive and open to cooperation. My delegation during its presidency will continue to promote trust among member states and seek every possible way in this August body to fulfill its mandate while avoiding politicization of city and also confrontation among members. So back to your question, Josh. The conference has a rotating presidency amongst its 65 members. It follows the country's names in alphabetical order. So North Korea, whose full name is Democratic People's Republic of Korea, is following Cuba. It's important to note that North Korea will only be presiding for four weeks for the duration of June. Walkouts are not that uncommon, as it happened previously when the US and Canada pulled out of the conference while Iran was chair in 2013. But in response to North Korea assuming presidency, several NGOs appealed to Secretary General Guterres and several democratic countries to protest by walking out of the conference. That didn't happen, but there were verbal protests through statements criticising North Korea. Yeah, especially given this all comes at a time when we've actually seen North Korea escalate its nuclear threats, haven't we? Yes. Well, just last week, South Korea's military and Japan announced that North Korea has fired at least two ballistic missiles just one day after President Biden finished up his five-day trip to Asia. And last weekend, the US completed naval exercises with South Korea in the Philippine Sea, in response to signs that North Korea is potentially preparing its first nuclear test explosion since 2017. And North Korea's presidency is also happening very interestingly as South Korea's new president, President Yoon Suk-yeol, is wrapping up his first month in office. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't realise South Korea actually had a new president. 
So what can you tell us about President Yoon then? Who is he and what are his policies? Well, President Yoon is a conservative politician who actually won by a very narrow margin. Focusing on his foreign policy platform, he campaigned on increased sanctions against North Korea and growing South Korea's relationship with the US and Japan. In recent talks, President Biden and President Yoon effectively ended a conciliatory stance towards North Korea and began a policy of firm deterrence with the goal of denuclearization. And taking a bit of the jargon out of it, this is a really big departure from previous policies, which advocated for a more cooperative and diplomatic approach, such as relaxing the enforcement of sanctions to encourage Pyongyang to comply with UN resolutions. And so if the recent tests by North Korea being related to this new foreign policy, are they some form of backlash against the South Korean president? Well, interestingly, I found out that North Korea has a history of attempting to provoke new leaders of South Korea by conducting nuclear and missile tests. So the increase in tests in an election year is not exactly surprising. But what is different this time is the perceived threat that accompanies these tests, which North Korea would be very aware of. Wait, what's different about this time around? It relates to the conflict in Ukraine. Russia's use of nuclear threats as a deterrent for Western intervention in Ukraine has suddenly made the idea of nuclear coercion a reality. And in a military parade earlier this year, Kim Jong-un signaled his willingness to engage in nuclear coercion against South Korea. This spook has really increased the popularity of Cold War logic of nuclear deterrence, which is a key part of South Korea's conservative platforms. Their agendas also advocate for an increase in nuclear assets from the US in South Korea and much more overt threats of military force. Just to demonstrate how popular nuclear deterrence is in South Korea, Josh, a poll by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs found that 71% of South Koreans support the country acquiring its own nuclear weapons. So nuclear diplomacy is as much about what countries appear to be doing as it is about what countries are actually doing. How North Korea runs the conference and the fact that its ambassador stated in an official statement that North Korea is still at war with the United States is not a great sign for the future of the Korean Peninsula. Less than two weeks ago, in El Salvador went from an average of two violent deaths a day to nearly 70 murders in less than 48 hours. President Nayib Bukele quickly reacted by asking Congress to declare martial law since his party has an overwhelming majority of seats. Kelly, we're going to go to El Salvador now, which is in the midst of an unprecedented security crackdown. Over the last two months, the country's democratically elected president, Nayib Bukele, has ordered the arrest of 36,000 people. It's estimated that roughly 2% of adults in El Salvador are currently in prison. What's more, human rights groups say that many of those prisoners have been arrested without good reason and subjected to torture. That is really quite extraordinary. Why have so many people been arrested? It's all part of a supposed crackdown on gang violence. So for decades, El Salvador has been plagued by horrific crimes linked to notorious gangs like MS-13 and Barrio 18. El Salvador has long been known as one of the most violent countries in the world. America deported thousands of criminal gang members back here in the 90s. 
and the poverty-stricken barrios of the capital have been plagued by turf wars ever since. These gangs traffic drugs across the region, they carry out regular assassinations, and they control entire neighbourhoods in El Salvador. Gang violence hit an all-time high in March this year, when 87 people were murdered by gang members in a single weekend. In response, President Bukele declared that he would wipe out MS-13 and Barrio 18. Coreando en rumores que quieren empezarse a vengar de la gente honrada, al azar. Hagan eso y no va a haber un tiempo de comida en las cárceles. He declared a state of emergency and gave the police the power to arrest anyone that they deemed suspicious and to jail them for an unlimited amount of time. And those who are arrested are not allowed to have a lawyer or a proper trial. But if there are no charges, trials or lawyers involved, surely there is a huge risk that tons of innocent people are being imprisoned. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that risk is also exacerbated by the fact that the police are required to arrest a certain number of people every week. Bukele has ordered that any prisoner who is suspected of being a gang member is to be treated worse than other detainees. Wow, okay. So how do ordinary El Salvadorians feel about this? Has there been outrage at the tactics used by the president? Believe it or not, most of the country actually supports the crackdown. In fact, since it started, President Bukele's popularity has soared to 91% in opinion polls. So that's crazily high. And it seems that most El Salvadorians think that gang violence has become so bad that an extreme solution is needed. Bukele has also sought to justify the crackdown on the basis that his other policies have allegedly caused the murder rate in El Salvador to drop by 60%. So he says that this is proof that people should trust him and that they should trust the current crackdown. But there's evidence that President Bukele hasn't been entirely honest about the drop in the murder rate. The alternative media outlet El Faro reported on Monday that Bukele's government held negotiations with three of the country's main gangs. In exchange for their commitment to maintaining the national homicide rate at a historic low, the gangs demanded, among other benefits, improved prison conditions and increased employment opportunities for their members outside of prison. In addition to striking secret deals with the gangs, he's allegedly altered the homicide statistics and instructed police not to investigate any suspicious deaths or disappearances. That is very worrying. So what should we make of President Bukele then? Well, human rights groups say that these heavy-handed tactics that he's using throughout the crackdown are part of a broader campaign to undermine El Salvador's fledgling democracy. So El Salvador only transitioned to democratic rule in 2009 after decades of dictatorship. However, since Bukele was elected in 2019, the country has begun to backslide. Over the last three years, Bukele has proudly called himself the world's coolest dictator, has fired Supreme Court judges, and even used the army to threaten opposition MPs. And all of this raises troubling questions about El Salvador's future as a democracy. And it also fits this broader trend of other democratic countries in the region slowly sliding towards authoritarianism. As a result, Pressure is growing on the US to intervene in El Salvador, given that it provides huge amounts of aid and financial support to the country. No decisions have been announced yet, but keep an eye out for any new announcements from the Biden administration in the coming months, because there's likely to be some. 
Can the rest of the world stay out of it when Russia's invasion of Ukraine starts to threaten global food supplies? This week's bombing of the Black Sea resort of Odessa, a reminder that Moscow's blockading Ukraine's main port of export for wheat and other grains. The UN's World Food Program relies on those cereals, and already they're feeling the pinch in places like civil war-torn Ethiopia. Josh, you've probably heard about the food crisis sparked by the conflict in Ukraine. As of last week, we've marked 100 days of the conflict. And that also means 100 days of the Black Sea blockade and disruptions to agriculture schedules. Ukraine is known as the breadbasket of Europe because it is the top grain supplier to dozens of developing countries. In May 2022, Ukraine exported 643,000 tonnes of grain. In May 2021, it sold 1.8 million tonnes. This has all understandably caused international alarm on food supplies for the world's most vulnerable populations. There is no effective solution to the food crisis without reintegrating Ukraine's food production as well as the food and fertilizer produced by Russia and Belarus into world markets despite the war. Yeah, I've heard this talked about recently on the news. And look, I can't imagine there's an easy solution to this. Well, last week, the head of the African Union, President Macky Sall from Senegal, met with President Putin to talk about the food shortages. It seemed to be a productive meeting, with Russia keen to cooperate with African states and President Sall giving a statement that he was leaving Russia feeling very reassured and very happy. And the African Union is refusing to take sides, as they have also made a plea to European Union leaders on the 31st of May and are planning a future trip to Ukraine. The chair of the AU, President Macky Sall, should travel to Russia, but we also said that he should travel to Ukraine. We believe that Africa does have a role to play because it has access to both leaders in both countries to foster the whole process of dialogue. Overall, there have been several solutions proposed by different countries. France and Germany have proposed an end to the blockade of Ukrainian ports via a UN resolution. A Black Sea corridor is being negotiated by Turkey and Russia's foreign ministers in a meeting next week. President Sol, somewhat aligned with Russia's position, has instead criticized EU sanctions on Russian banks for making the payment of food supplies difficult. Lithuania, interestingly, has proposed that a naval so-called coalition of the willing should lift the Black Sea blockade. This plan would involve the UN calling on Russia to ensure safe passage and Ukraine to remove mines from the port of Odessa. It will be a huge diplomatic task, no doubt, to pull any workable solution off, though. Yeah, absolutely. It's not easy to end a war and to restore global food supply chains at all. But let's go back to Africa for a moment, because I'm interested in this. Putin's war is causing a grain shortage supply there at the same time that he's trying to increase his influence on the African continent. And we've talked about that a bit before on previous wrap-up episodes. So what can you tell us about that? How is this fitting in with his overall Africa strategy? Yes, well, Africa in general is in a sticky situation because of this conflict. Not only are many African nations highly dependent on Russia and Ukraine for food and fertilizer, 
Russian oil companies are also major players in oil exploration and extraction, and of course, very dependent on private security forces and military forces as well. This economic and military dependency has meant that many African countries have abstained from public condemnation of Russia. For example, when 93 UN member states voted to suspend Russia's membership on the Human Rights Council, over 20 African countries abstained or voted against the suspension. So that might mean that Putin's strategy in Africa is actually working in his favor to get some allies in the international fora. And all of this is all quite reflective of the long-standing affinity that many African countries still have with Russia from the decades of the Cold War. However, the gas crisis in Europe has created an opportunity for African countries that are rich in natural gas to more closely align with European Union nations. Already, there are talks of reviving a proposed trans-Saharan gas pipeline from Algeria, Nigeria, and Niger to Europe. So going back to the food insecurity problem, we can't deny that it's going to get worse without a solution. But it's really important how that solution is actually reached because the diplomatic ties that are formed during that process will have deep implications for how Africa is aligned for the future. Well, Kelly, if you've switched on the news, scrolled through social media or browsed the internet over the weekend, chances are you were bombarded with updates about this. Well, now to the incredible scenes from London. On the first day of the Platinum Jubilee, tens of thousands line the streets outside Buckingham Palace to honour the Queen. The 96-year-old is the longest-serving monarch in British history and it's unlikely any future leader will surpass her 70-year reign on the throne. Over the weekend, the UK celebrated 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II's reign. And it wasn't just the UK. Countries all around the world joined in too. Beacons were lit across the Commonwealth. That day began in the capital. A lighting of the beacon heralded in formal celebrations. World leaders sent their congratulations. This year, the 70th of your reign, we celebrate your achievements. And here in Australia, an island in Canberra was named after the Queen. Treasure this moment, remember it. A milestone that may never be repeated. The Prime Minister officially renaming Canberra's Aspen Island, Queen Elizabeth II. Watching all the pageantry, it'd be easy to assume that the British monarchy was in its prime. But behind all the pomp and all the ceremony, a much more complex picture appears. One that raises questions about the future of the royals and the remainder of the British Empire. Very intriguing, Josh. So talk me through that. In what ways is the British monarchy under pressure? Uh, well, Kelly, how much time do you have? Like, honestly, there is so many ways. Probably the clearest threat to the monarchy in the last few years has been the behaviour of the royal family themselves. So, of course, as we all know by now, the Queen's favourite son, Prince Andrew, was accused of abusing teenage girls. Britain's Prince Andrew has been stripped of his military affiliations and royal patronages. The prince will also stop using his Royal Highness title in any official capacity. And the royal family has also faced accusations of racism over its treatment of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. All of these scandals have greatly damaged the reputation of the monarchy. 
After all, the royal family costs British taxpayers about £345 million a year, and that's led a growing number of UK residents to question whether or not it's worth that price tag. For the first time ever, a poll last year found that the majority of young English people want to abolish the monarchy. Only 33% said they wanted to keep it. And that trend is even more significant in other parts of the UK. For example, in Scotland, only 45% of the entire population now supports the monarchy. That's very surprising to me. However, as the more controversial members of the royal family are sidelined and younger, more popular royals step into the spotlight, could support rebound for the royal family? Well, look, anything's possible. But Kelly, it seems that the decline in support for the monarchy is arguably due to bigger, more permanent issues, mainly its historical links to slavery and colonisation. So for three centuries, the royal family sponsored and protected the slave trade, and much of its current wealth was sourced from slave trading. And that's prompted a lot of discomfort, not only in Britain, but in other Commonwealth nations as well. We saw an example of that during Prince William's recent trip to the Caribbean to visit Belize, Jamaica and the Bahamas, all of which still have the Queen as their head of state. And his visit immediately got off to a rocky start. Before even stepping onto the tarmac in the Caribbean nation of Belize, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's charm offensive hit a sour note. This is our land! This is our property! Protests against the monarchy forced William to cancel part of his tour around Belize. And it was a similar story in the Bahamas, where residents denounced the royal family. Them coming here as representatives of the biggest colonial slave mistress on earth Elizabeth of England is a big problem. Then, during his final stop, the Jamaican PM told William that Jamaica was moving on from the British monarchy and that it planned to soon become a republic. This goes to demonstrate, I think, just how rapidly the British monarchy is losing its grip on the last remaining parts of its empire. After all, last year, Barbados removed the Queen as its head of state. The Queen's empire has shrunk tonight, with the Caribbean nation of Barbados becoming a republic. Prince Charles was there to represent the crown amid new controversy. Its neighbours, Belize, the Bahamas, Jamaica and Grenada, are also thinking of becoming republics in the very near future. Wow, this is a lot that's happening for the British monarchy. What's the mood like in other former colonies like Australia and Canada? Well, it's also pretty dire. In Canada, at least 45% of the population want the Queen removed as their head of state, and the numbers are about the same in Australia. And we've seen the new Labour government seize on that. So Anthony Albanese appointed an Assistant Minister for the Republic last week, and he plans to hold a referendum on becoming a republic if he is elected after the next election. So if things are to continue as they are, it is very likely that over the next decade or so, we will see the collapse of the final remnants of the British Empire. And what's more, if anti-royal sentiment keeps rising in Britain as younger generations rise to the fore, the monarchy could also come to an end. And Kelly, I think that's a great reminder that even the most powerful empires eventually crumble as time marches on and societies slowly evolve. Well, that's a very philosophical end to this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. 
Speaking of philosophical matters, next week will be the fifth episode of our in-depth season on technology. Rhiannon will be chatting to experts about a really fascinating topic, the role of social media in terrorism. Until then, follow our Instagram page at Global Questions for news updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. All the links are in the episode description. We'll see you all in a fortnight. Bye.